trapped in a world they never made. Yes, the film file, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome. This is the film file. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And I'm your lead geek this week. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm your second in command, Andy Meakin. I gotta put you down as uh, as kind of if I'm Captain Crane, then you're Admiral Nelson. But hey, that's just me. Andy, oh, how are you? I'm your, I'm the Riker to your Picard. Oh well, thank you. Make it <laughs> so. The, I'm the action star who does everything while Picard just sits on his marvelous. <laughs> points a lot. He did a lot of pointing, did Picard. A lot of pointing and like tugging on his clothes, going, make it so. <laughs> Apparently, that's called the Picard maneuver, where he tugs down his uniform, right, uh, to, to to cover his belly. <laughs> but anyway, and the Riker maneuver is how Riker steps onto a seat. Which, um, whenever you rewatch any Next Gen episodes, pay attention to how he steps over chairs when he's sitting down. Okay, I, uh, I well, I've I've not got round to watching the new season of Picard yet, so. <laughs> Uh, I, I'll look for that because I know I've not uh, I've not seen him do Mike it in Picard yet, but in the old episodes, it's because Jonathan Frakes had a back injury problem, okay. which he suffered from through the years, and always and so he, he always stepped over chairs to step onto it. And it's also why he's known for leaning a lot while he's talking, and it's all because of Jonathan Frakes' back injury. Oh right, yeah. see, this You're not is just here not for just, film news, not just film news, interesting stuff. You never know well. when this is going to be in pub quizzes. Might be, my week's been actually been quite fun. I mean, not only was Stephen pleased with our show last week. <laughs> I'm hoping he was. Um, he, he said that he loved waking up and finding his name, like a show with his name dedicated to it. It, it was great. But he enjoyed our look at one of his favourite films. And even though we didn't love it as much as him, he loved our reasoning and he loved our discussion. And that's what it's all about. It's like, even if we don't particularly like something, if we can back it up and justify why it doesn't work with us, we can also understand why it works with some people. Yeah. That's what film love is all about. It's discussion. Accepting that other people have different opinions. Yeah, if, if only a certain audience out there would actually acknowledge that. But anyway. But um, moving on very quickly. I'll, but yeah, this week I got to see Weird Al. How was it? Oh, it was great, man. It was really good. Um, it was a nice evening in Manchester. Emo Phillips did a good half hour warm-up set and Emo Phillips is one of them that I've forgotten how funny he can be because his childlike nature of approaching it catches you off guard because you don't expect him to go into the dark places that he sometimes does and it, it was just like zingers one after the other I was in stitches and then Weird Al comes out plays through loads of his he wasn't doing his cover versions or his parodies he was doing his own right like um Albuquerque etc etc and it was just so much fun him engaging with the audience, changing some of the like approach to some of his tracks. And with Albuquerque, he does the um, asking for different flavoured donuts so many times. Instead of it just being five times before he goes to the bear claw, he must have done about 20 different flavoured donuts. And you just sat there thinking, OK, how long is he going this for? It was he's he's a joy to watch and the audience were lapping it up. It was a great evening. Well, well I, I got a gig in. I went to see the Black Star Riders and they were supported by Michael Monroe and a fabulous evening it was. It was good to get out to a gig. It's uh, my first gig of the year. It was uh, just so good to be around like-minded people enjoying music. But the bit of a downside, I was talking to uh, the lead singer, Ricky Warwick, out of Black Star Riders after the show, and they were saying how difficult it is for, for bands right now, for people coming out. People are very reluctant to 
to get out and see live yeah. music, which is worrisome. You know, we, we start again playing on the 4th of, uh, 4th of March, but yeah, I've, I've noticed it. It's, it's tough trying to get people back into live venues. And we've seen yeah. how slowly uh, cinemas took up the, the challenge of going back into it, but gigs even more so. So let's hope this year that people start to realise how important live music is for them. Yeah, it's just a great night out. Uh, also this week, it was Happy Hallmark Day. I mean, um, Valentine's Day. And uh, it, the, the joy that I, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. I mean, why only have the one day of the year that you say you love someone when you can say it any day of the year and it can still mean something. Uh, but I was paying attention this Valentine's Day because if you remember, a certain hashtag brigade uh, were getting oh, it. We're yeah, gonna, yeah, we mentioned we're it on do something. And uh, I now refer to it as the hashtag brigade's Valentine's Day massacre because uh, they planned to get to one million tweets with the hashtags on them for sell Zack Snyder's Justice League to Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. Right. They got to, go on, place a guess, place a guess how, how many hashtags they got to. 10,000. Oh, they did better than that. Oh, okay. 100,000. 149,000. So they targeted a million, they got 149,000. Cue manacle laughter because... What that makes me realise is that if that was 149,000 people, which it wasn't, it was probably a tenth of that because they were all, well, probably a hundredth of that because they all promised to hashtag it out a hundred times each. Multiply that by $20 box office and that's 2.98 million that film will take if they all buy a ticket. 2.98 million. So <laughs> let's be generous. Take a third of the budget. The budget would have to be a million. A budget for that film to be a million. So rather than sell to Netflix, guys, maybe you should try and sell it to Asylum. <laughs> yeah, I did, well, I did see you You mentioned that on, on Facebook and uh, I smirked. I smirked in it your just general amuses me. Maybe they'll start to realise that they're not a big movement. And it has been interesting noticing some of the people who I used to see joining all our hashtags now are starting to come round to the idea of James Gunn's new wave and say, well, let's see how this goes instead. So the losing numbers, the bleeding, the ones who are actually DC fans are stepping away from it. And you've just got the cult who are shrinking every week. It's great. I mean, I, I don't take pleasure in um, other people's misfortune, but come on. <laughs> We've got to take pleasure in this. <laughs> so how did we do on our um, our challenge last week? Well, I think everyone was watching the hashtags, uh, like hashtag brigade go to pot because we didn't get a huge response. Oh, it okay. might just be might just be that we've got a load of cynical people out there who don't do romance, possibly. Could be. But we did get a handful of responses. A quick reminder for the people who didn't pay attention. The question was, it's Valentine's Day. What's the heartwarming or even heartbreaking movie you would pick out to watch with a loved one on Valentine's Day? Steely Steve told us Blade Runner. It's technically a love story. Okay. Okay, can't argue. Steve, Steve's the last of the romantics there. Stevie Dan, 1969. Good old Stevie Dan. Somewhere in time. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, very good. And Hanover Street. Oh, yeah, I quite like Hanover Street. I've not uh, seen Harris Hanover Ford. Street. I've seen it for years. Um, Anna Kerry, a huge horror fan. So, Return of the Living Dead 3. <laughs> <laughs> and I respect that. Because if I was going to sit with someone to watch a nice film, a loved one to watch a nice film, I wouldn't go for a rom-com myself. I mean, after this show tonight, I've already promised the wife that we're going to sit and watch uh, Bullet Train because she's not seen it. Can't wait to watch it with her. I know that you put forward Bullet Before Sunrise. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> you love your Before series of films. I, I do very much. Um, I think it's that certainly the first one in particular is one of the most romantic films I've ever seen because it's the ambiguity of love. Yeah. And uh, it's the the honesty of getting to know somebody and how that getting to know somebody is is, is a, 
it's going to sound crass, but a two-way affair. And that's in in that film, we've got both characters reaching out and learning a little bit more about each other. And of course, that fantastic ending blew me away when I saw it. Nadine Geneva clearly agrees with you because she replied to that with good choice. Yeah, it is a good choice. Let's be honest. Like you say, for all the reasons that you say, it is a good choice. And Harvey Morton. Hi, Harvey. Hey, Harvey. He gave us a few to pick from. Some of his favourites are Call Me By Your Name. That has been on my watch list for so long, and I really do need to get around to it. a couple of years ago. Lovely man. Man Up, The Fault in Our Stars, and Me Before You. He doesn't know why as well, but he also has a soft spot for the 2008 film Ghost Town, the Ricky Gervais one. It's not that it's romantic as such, but... It's charming. I I really like Ghost Town. It's just appeared on Netflix. That was one that... When it came out, I was so over Ricky Gervais at that point in time. I still liked his stand-up, but I was done with him on screen. But I sat down and watched it. I was like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. It's mm. one that shows like how versatile Gervais can actually be yeah. when he's not just playing to his normal tropes. Um, so, yeah, some great choices there, Harvey. Like I said last week, I mean, I've just said at the start of this that, you know, I'll sit with an action film, usually with someone who I love. But if I was going to watch something that makes me weep and, like, is all about love... It's I love you, man. Which we which we did that joke last. Yeah, week, we did. So I'm not going to do it. go back and do it again. It was... Genuinely, I love you, man. Is a rom com. It might be a bromance comedy, but it's purely a rom com. It has all the structure of a classic rom com. You've got the meet cute. You've got them having the fallout. You've got the reconciliation. Everything is there that is in a standard rom-com. It's just done it as it's a friendship between two guys. And I can embrace that, relate to it. And everyone who I've sat and watched it with, male or female, have all enjoyed it for exactly those reasons. That you don't need it to be about ending up sleeping together or getting married. It can be just about that relationship and how it works. And that's a great film to showcase how it does. Plus, Paul Rudd. I mean, we love Paul Rudd. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be talking about Paul Rudd much later on the show. We Ruddy will. (laughs) (laughs) But before that, let's set a a challenge for this week. And there's some sad news regarding Bruce Willis, which we'll talk about when we get to the news, which got me thinking, what's your favourite Bruce Willis movie? I mean, everybody's going to initially go for Die Hard, but is that your favourite Bruce Willis performance? Let us know. I could name uh, a good few where I think he's been absolutely outstanding. Uh, and I'm putting aside Die Hard because it's almost like it's, it's almost like the holy grail of fantastic movies. You you can see it afar and we don't have to mention it um, because I'm going to mention The Last Boy Scout, which I think is my favourite outside of Die Hard. I've never talked to that. Uh, yeah. I, I need, it's one that I really need to revisit because I watched it in the 90s and didn't quite gel with it, but I've never gone back to it. Should we add it onto a deep dive at some point? We should. We should. And I'll, I'll, we'll I'll always have to say that Bruce Willis, for me, will always be David Addison. Oh, Moonlighting, man. There, there you've, you've caught me there. I love Moonlighting. When it comes to films, I, yeah, I, I'd probably go something like 12 Monkeys. Yeah, well, so many, so many. You know, people just, when they, when they think of Bruce Willis, they'll think, think Die Hard. There are so many. Pure enjoyability, films. The Fifth Element. There you go. There I you treasure go. that film. But no, there's, there's a, a load you can pick from in Sin City, yeah. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, he's had a solid career. Yeah. And, you know, whilst the past few years we know why he's been taking just any old role and just uh, banking the cash, you cannot deny that there's a huge chunk of films that it's going to be hard to narrow down what your favourite one is. So honouring Bruce Willis, what is your favourite Bruce Willis performance? But what else do we have on the show for you this week? Well, on this week's show, we've got the news and box office. We've got a deep dive into Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire. We've got reviews aplenty. 
kicking off with? Well, there was a small film about a small character that came out this week. Marcel Lachelle with shoes on, which I'll be reviewing. But both of us have seen the big release of this week, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and Apple TV's Sharper as well. Before any of that, here's this week's The News. So as we said at the top end, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania came out this week, but how is it standing up at the box office? So worldwide, it's been all about Ant-Man. Over in the US, it took the top spot, finishing the weekend on 105.5 million. It's been the strongest opening for the Ant-Man films to date, and it's a very good sign for the year to come for Marvel films, whether it can maintain it on its second week. We know that Marvel films of the past year have had a sharp drop-off on week two. We'll find out more next week. Avatar Way of Water holds into second place with another 6.5 million onto its total. Magic Mike's Last Dance takes 5.5 million to take third place. Puss in Boots Last Wish moves up a point to fourth place, taking another 5.3 million. And Knock at the Cabin holds into fifth with 4 million. Here in the UK, Ant-Man, again, in first place, took £8.8 million this weekend. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, £3.2 million added onto its total to keep second place. Its total today to the UK is £17.2 million. Magic Mike's Last Dance in third place, adding another 888000 onto its total. Avatar Way of Water drops into fourth with 531000 whilst Epic Tales takes fifth place, taking 332000 Worldwide, Ant-Man's took 359 million. Whether the positive word of mouth that it's getting from the audience reviews as opposed to the critics' reviews will prevent it having a huge drop-off remains to be seen. Puss in Boots The Last Wish Worldwide is now on 425 million, showing certainly that the Shrek franchise and its spin-offs still have an audience and can still draw in those numbers. And the big news of the week is clearly around Avatar The Way of Water, which has now knocked Titanic down into fourth place and took the third place in the top lifetime gross box office. It's currently sat on 2.24 billion. It's unlikely to reach the heady heights of Avengers Endgame. It's still got half a billion to go before it'll get there. But to say that the two Avatar films hold two of the top three spots certainly is a testament to how James Cameron's vision is embraced by audiences worldwide. Right, so that's the box office. Uh, What have we got? In the news. We had a poster drop this week of the Marvels, didn't we? We did, yeah. Subtle, I thought. I thought it was yeah. very subtle. Uh, I like the fact that the logos for the characters are part of the lighting behind them. It's it's simple. And it's my kind of effective poster. I don't like these mishmash, copy and paste, uh, like Photoshop ones, where they're just composition of images, yada, 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 and too much going on. I love the simplicity of these kind of designs. And it's similar to that simple design of one of the first posters for the first Captain Marvel film, where it was the hangar doors opening, and there's just the silhouette of her stood by the hangar doors and the cat. Keep it simple. So what we've got is we've got Brie Larson returning as Carol Danvers. And in this film, she's going to team up with Iman Vellani's uh, Kamala Khan and Tayona Paris's Monica Rambeau on the big screen. And the poster was a bit of an, uh, 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 a dazzler, I thought, and yep. set the style for the movie. Uh, we know very little about it. But what we do know is that it's been pushed back now from our screens in July and it won't be with us now until November. Yes, uh, it's November the 10th is the new release date for it. Disney's Haunted Mansion is going to jump into the now empty July slot instead. Obviously, that instantly started some speculation and commenting online of how this must mean that Marvels is a mess and probably needs reshoots. Now, being that I work within the industry, I know that November is a traditionally stronger month for a big film release than late July. Late July and through August is quite a quiet period for cinemas. 
And so this actually shows that they've got more confidence in the Marvels than in Haunted Mansion, which has a lower target age. So that will sit right. better midsummer. Plus, they're bringing the Marvels out the week after June 2 comes out. So they're confident enough to go head to head on week two of another big film. This yep. isn't Marvel panicking. This is Marvel going. I think we could do something with the November slot. It also, we need to remember that just before Christmas, uh, we had Bob Iger and Kevin Feige's plans were revealed that they were going to slow down the Marvel productions a bit. Yeah. So that, because we've been swamped over Chapex reign, he was forcing out, forcing Feige to just churn out more and more content. And Feige has now said quality over quantity is more important. Space them out more. It gives the effects studios more time to actually work on the effects because one of the common criticisms of the last lot of Marvel films and TV shows is the effects don't always work. And that's because there's been so much pressure to keep churning them out. Let's have some breathing space. And I think that the main reasons for the move are A, they've got more confidence in the film and B, they want to make sure that it has the quality that it needs. Disney plus Marvel TV shows are also going to be slowing down on release. Last year, we were told multiple shows would come this year. Secret Invasion, Loki, Echo, What If Season 2, Ironheart, Agatha, Coven of Chaos. And now it looks like only Loki and Secret Invasion are definite for this year. Echo okay. and Ironheart are hinted to be coming next year, and the rest have no idea as to when they're going to be landing. And again, this slowing down is the quality over quantity, having seen the burnout over the last couple of years. And this is likely going to impact on the future planned shows such as Daredevil and Nova, which will be get put back even further. I, I'm in agreement with it, Andy. We said this before yeah. on the show. You don't want it to burn out. You're kind of up against an audience that were reaching saturation point. And so yep. every six weeks, it didn't feel special anymore when you were no. just getting show after show after show, even though I enjoyed some of the shows so much, but it just didn't feel as though it was an event anymore. Yeah, you know, Figi's been saying that he'd like, he believes that the Marvel Cinematic Universe could continue for another 80 years, like the comics have continued for 80 years. And in order to do that, they've got to slow down. They've got to avoid the burnout. You've got to avoid people getting fed up of seeing the same thing over and over again. So less is indeed more. Disney are also planning to support cinemas with longer th planned theatrical releases for upcoming animated offerings, Wish and Elemental, hopefully with decent marketing this time, because we know what, that, what happened last time. So Disney are, are kind of re-strategizing and you can see it's going back to what Disney was before the COVID lockdown. Yeah. Iger has come back with this mindset of everything that's gone wrong has been because they've been they've been focused too much on the Disney Plus service and getting content, content, con content, rather than actually going, let's just get some good stuff out there and get the audiences back on board. Figi's also been talking about Harrison Ford's Thaddeus Ross, right. who's now president in the United States in Captain America New World Order. Uh, that film is going to explore the dynamic between him and Anthony Mackie's Sam Wilson. And he's also confirmed that Thunderbolts will see Bucky Barnes as the leader of the team. And Spider-Man 4 is on the way. All that he's going to say, though, is that they have a story, they have big ideas for that, and the writers are putting pen to paper right now. Mm, well, interested to know who will direct it more than anything else yeah. at this stage. Marvel stuff is going ahead. We also know that Blade is set to kick off filming in the next 10 weeks or so. And we will also start to hear more about Fantastic Four soon. Yeah, there's been lots of rumours and gossip on casting. Don't believe a word until I see an official statement on that one. Yes, they do plan that the Fantastic Four will be a big pillar of the MCU going forward, as they should be. Sticking with comic books, it's been announced that there is going to be yet another Hellboy reboot. But this time with a bit of a difference. 
is that the crooked man will have the character's creator, Mike Minola, penning the movie's screenplay. So we got 2019's reboot starring Black Widow's David Harbour, uh, and that bombed unceremoniously because of tons and tons of interference uh, from the producers, uh, so much so that the director wasn't allowed into the edit suite, and uh, rumour has it that he wasn't even allowed to finish the movie. What we do know about this one, that Hellboy Crooked Man is indeed set to start shooting next month yep. in Bulgaria with director of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance and Crank, Brian Taylor, helming this movie. Other than that, we've got no other news. Having Brian Taylor set to direct has made me very wary because as much as I enjoyed Crank for how hype and frenetic it was, his Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance was an overly edited and cut a juddery camera work filled mess of a film. And I'm just, I don't want that for a Hellboy film. I no. don't want it to be all stylized in the way that he tends to approach. And I get the feeling that it probably will be. And for those who don't know the story of um, Hellboy, the Crooked Man, it's a 2011 comic. It followed Hellboy. It was set in 1956 in the Appalachian Mountains, where he encounters a man who in his youth sold his soul to a backwards demon called the Crooked Man. And together, they confront the demon to see if the man's soul can be saved. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. Not sold on it, because I personally would still love that third Del Toro one. Yes. I'd even like to see David Harbour come back. Yeah, I don't think... He, he wasn't a problem with that 2019 one. He was great. He was just in the wrong film. Yeah. Uh, but Millennium Media uh, working on this one. Let's let's hold off any thoughts on it until we get some images, etc. from the set. Lilo and Stitch, the live-action version, has cast uh, Zach Galifianakis as Pleakley. Um, I know I've seen the film. I have no idea who Pleakley was. I can't remember it. Any ideas? I, I, I've got no idea. <laughs> i I never really enjoyed that film. It was okay. It was okay. That, that's about it, it, isn't it? Yeah. But Zach Galifianakis is someone who I, I do enjoy in films. So that might convince me to at least check out this live action adaptation. We do know that Lilo and Stitch live action is going to be directed by Dean Fleischer Camp, who I'll be talking about later with my review of Marcel the Shell with Shoes on. And that's given you a little bit more interest in it, hasn't it? That's drawn me in a bit because what he brought to Marcel the Shell, I'll talk about that later. It is planned at the moment for Disney Plus as opposed to theatrical release, but let's see how Marcel Lachelle does at the Oscars next month because if it wins that Best Animated Feature Award, don't be too surprised if the studio decides that on the back of this director, they can get a big screen outing for it. Loads of casting news this week. For example, we've got Zoe Saldana is set to star in a film called The Bluff, an action survival feature from the Russos production company. It was previously set up at Netflix. It's now shifted to Amazon Prime. It's set in the 19th century Caribbean. It will follow a former female pirate, played by Saldana, who must protect her family when the mysterious sins of her past catch up with her. I love piratical adventures. I love Zoe Saldana. And I've got some time for anything which comes from the Russo's production stable. So, my eyes on that. I probably won't be checking out this one, but for former Grey's Anatomy star Patrick Dempsey is in talks with Eli Roth for his Thanksgiving movie, which is the full-length feature of that trailer that he did for the Grindhouse Oh, film. right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, for the Grindhouse thing. I think it's just going to be schlock horror. I'm not that bothered. No. There's a film adaptation of the Mean Girls stage musical. <laughs> of course there is. Tina Fey and Tim Meadows are going to reprise their roles as math teacher Miss Norbury and Principal Duval. 
nice bit of casting. Yep. Uh, riding high from his recent work, especially his Oscar nomination for the Banshees of Inishirin, Barry Cogan is looking to strike while the iron's hot and he's setting up a possible Billy the Kid biopic, uh, which has been uh, a film the actor has wanted to make for some time. He'll reunite with American Animals director Bart Layton and it will detail the life of Billy the Kid from uh, being orphaned at the age of 15 when his mother died and his stepfather abandoned his to his first arrest for robbery. And by the time he was 18, he was wanted for murder. After an altercation in Arizona, his notoriety escalated from there and he was 21 when Sheriff Pat Garrett shot him to death. Always been interested in the Billy the Kid story, uh, and I'm very interested in this. Yeah, Kogan himself lost his own mother at 12 years old and grew up within foster care. And so as a result, it's he, kind of connected with what Henry McCarthy went through, which led him to be becoming Billy the Kid. His aim, in his words, are to step outside the legend that was built up by the papers and tackle the pressure he must have felt from those early days. He was running his whole life. There's a soul and a vulnerability to Billy that I think it's important to bring to understand him as a real person rather than the myth that he's become. You know how much we love westerns, and yeah. I've got a huge. I've always had a fascination with the legend of Billy the Kid. So this is high on my list, and what a great actor! Riz Ahmed and Lily James will star in Hello High Water and starred up director David McKenzie's contemporary thriller Relay. Filming begins in April in New York and New Jersey. Ahmed plays a fixer whose speciality is brokering major payoffs between corrupt corporations and individuals who threaten to ruin them. He's careful to keep his identity hidden until a potential client seeks his protection in order to stay alive. And a film called Midair will see Globe, Golden Globe nominee Alan Eckhart leading the action. Filming begins this July with Magnus Martens, who gave us SAS Red Notice. The story on this one, after flying rogue missions for the CIA, a cargo pilot's flight goes haywire when he's stalked in midair by a terrorist who forces him to overcome a series of deadly obstacles. To outsmart him and keep everyone alive, he must outmaneuver and uncover the truth. We saw landing this week the Little Mermaid teaser. Then news followed that How to Train Your Dragon is being made into a live-action movie, and that's in the works at Universal. I'm not overly sure how I feel about that. Part of me is really excited to see it brought to vivid life. But at the other side, part of me just loved the charm of the animation style. But hey, I'm an open mind on this one because I think that it's a great set of stories to be able to adapt. Um, other trailers that we saw this week. I mean, the Little Mermaid trailer I thought was sweet enough. It yep. looks colourful. It looks bright. It looks vibrant. My daughter saw the trailer and she went, I want to see it. So it's worked. It's got the target audience. But the big trailers this week, The Flash. Yeah which we loved. I've watched it like 15 times. <laughs> With The Flash, I think it, it's a great seller trailer to not just fans. That's a great general audience trailer yeah. that just captures everyone's attention. When the when the Batman theme starts up, I had heckles going up my back and I was like, <laughs> my heart lifted. Uh, Transformers Rise of the Beasts had a new trailer as well. It's got yeah, me even more excited. I'm still not. I'm still not. I know you're not a big fan, but I'm I'm a big Transformers geek nerd boy, so I just like the fact that it it's Generation 1 and not Bayformers. So this is the Transformers that I loved as a kid. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny got a new trailer. Yep, saw that. And I don't want to... Do, I've been down this road before... And I don't want to be excited, but man, that trailer's really good. I got super giddy by uh, the trailer for John Wick Chapter 4. Yes. Apparently that film's going to come in about three hours, according to yeah, I the so. reports. I think so. If it's going to be the last Keanu Reeves John Wick movie, then I think it's it looked like it was going to go out in style. And I don't know whether you caught it, but there's uh, Children of the Corn. Yes, I did, yeah. There. Did a bit of a, um, it looked okay. It uh, looks better than the last 
14 children of the corn films. I've yeah. lost track of how many they went to. <laughs> it looked okay. Uh, yeah. I, I did like the the trailer for, for Boogeyman. I didn't see that one. That got under my skin in, in the right kind of way. So, yeah, yeah, good week for trailers. Oh, and, and the Creed 3 final trailer um, sets up that epic showdown stroke blowdown between Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors, who's just beefed up to look like a beast he really just looks like a, a machine in it that's that's only weeks away that film it's just about round my birthday oh well there's your birthday film sorted lethal spiders are coming back in fashion by the by the way oh, there's wait. two films about lethal spiders that are on their way this year we've got sting an australian made horror thriller coming from wormwood and nectronic filmmaker kayash roche turner which has already wrapped production wet workshop has created the spider effects and it's about a spider discovered by a rebellious 12-year-old girl obsessed with comic books living in an apartment with her family. Initially bonds with the spider and keeps it as a secret pet. She names Sting. But the creature's size and hunger starts to grow. And then pet neighbours' pets go missing. And then it becomes even more deadly as it discovers a taste for human flesh. Yeah, there you go. I do love a giant monster spider films. I, I had one in my back room earlier. I had to get out of <laughs> the window. With a glass. And uh, Charades and WT Films are teaming on a French horror film called Vermin, which is currently shooting in Paris with filming set to wrap in two weeks, which is set in a sub- underprivileged Parisian suburb that's been thrown into chaos following an invasion of venomous spiders after one escapes from a man battling over his inheritance with his sister. And let's be honest, you can throw the worst spider-related horror film in front of me, and I am just a giddy joy. (laughs) I just love that B-movie kind of approach of giant insects and monsters. So I'm in for both of these. So later this year, expect me to be either disappointed or raving like a giddy ant. Tim Blake Nelson and Vera Farmiga are set to play the founders of the religious cult Heaven's Gate for a true crime biopic, The Leader. Farmiga will play the cult leader Bonnie Ty Nettles, with Nelson as the group's infamous frontman, Marshall Duke Applewhite, in the film. If you don't know the story of the Heaven's Gate cult, just go online and look it up, because uh, these were the ones who had the 39 members of the American UFO cult who believed its followers could transform into immortal extraterrestrials and would ascend to heaven. Um, It made all the front page news Mm -hmm. at the time that it happened. It It led to the largest mass suicide ever to take place on American soil. Great casting and a really strong real life story to draw from there. We also know that in a twist worthy of the director himself, M. Night Shyamalan has jumped away from working closely with uh, Universal for releases. He's given Warner Brothers Pictures Group a first look deal. Okay. The filmmaker's works have grossed 3.3 billion at the box office to date. And he has the rare distinction of having a film open at number one in every decade since the 1990s, including his most recent one, Knock at the Cabin. Under the new agreement, Shyamalan and Blinding Edge Pictures will develop original projects for the filmmaker to produce and or direct for Warner Brothers Pictures and New Line Cinema. And the first project in the pipeline and likely to be Shyamalan's next directorial one is called Trap, which is dated for a theatrical release on August the 2nd, 2024. Shyamalan said in a statement, Disney and Universal, where I've made most of my films, will always be home and family to me. Warner Brothers has a storied history of cinema. Through its recent experiences, the company has rediscovered its love and appreciation for filmmakers and the impact of the theatrical experience. We will all win when movies succeed in theatres. I believe David Zaslav, Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi have dedicated themselves to unique filmmakers and to filling theatres all around the world for years to come. I think this is another thing that's reflective of how Zaslav's new approach to Warner's is trying to steer it in a new direction. We know that Shyamalan keeps budgets low now and ends up going into profit. So they're obviously not just throwing loads of money at 
high-end products they're going for diverse range so we mentioned this earlier in the show and that's uh bruce willis the willis family has released a statement updating all of us on the health of the actor who has now been officially diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia the statement reads since we announced bruce's diagnosis of asphasia in spring 2022 bruce's condition has progressed and we now have a more specific diagnosis. FTD, unfortunately, the challenges with communication are just one of the symptoms of the disease that Bruce faces. While this is painful, it's a relief to finally have a a clear diagnosis. Uh, Bruce Willis is 67 years old and has an amazing body of work. While we know he's a hero on screen, sadly, there are no treatments or cures for disease, which means that Willis's condition will only continue to advance and sadly worsen. However, the family are using his platform as an opportunity to raise awareness of this terrible disease. Sad news and, you know, going into aspects of dementia, like, you know, it hits close to home for me, as you can remember from when I discussed uh, the impact that the film The Father had on me. Yeah. And I have, I offer nothing but support for the cause, uh, the raising of awareness and any donations that people can give to any funding into research to try to find cures for these Diseases that we should have been able to tackle by now. Yeah, sad news. Uh, But we also had other sad news this week. We did indeed. Um, Iconic 60s and 70s screen siren Raquel Welch passed away after brief illness at the age of 82. Some of us may remember her from watching reruns of films and TV shows. For me, I don't know whether my first experience with Raquel Welch on screen was Fantastic Voyage or Three Musketeers. Oh, well, I'm going to go for me with Fantastic Voyage, but then I did see the iconic bikini-clad role she played in One Million Years BC, uh, which was, um, to, to this young boy, quite impressive. She was a, she was an she absolute... She was a screen idol. Yeah, she was an a, absolute... People talked about her in almost mm. religious fervour. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And she left acting to develop her own uh, skincare products. But people forget that she left a, a huge body of work, uh, including uh, Fathom, Legally Blonde, Bluebeard, the great Burt Reynolds movie, Fuzz. Uh, she appeared in TV in Spin City, Seinfeld, uh, American yeah. Family. Uh, and sadly, Miss, she was an absolute absolute screen icon yeah like i say three musketeers or fantastic voyage was my early experiences with her and i fell in love with her there and then naked gun 33 and a third she was probably the the one good thing in that final insult yeah i'm gonna have to name because i think it's a fantastic western it's it's problematic now but i remember seeing it at the time and that's hanny calder yeah she was amazing it and and a film that i remember seeing as part of a double bill i can't remember what the double bill was but a film called kansas city bomber in which she was phenomenal uh, and that was about uh, roller derby uh, a fantastic movie passed away age 82 leaves behind a stunning body of work our sincerest condolences go out to her family friends and all fellow fans out there and we sadly have to mention the passing and it only happened uh, yesterday the sad passing of Stella Stevens you'll remember her as she was just a 60s icon she just had that look Best known for The Nutty Professor. She was in The Silences with Dean Martin. Fantastic in The Ballad of Cable Hogue, but probably best remembered 
for the Poseidon adventure. Yeah. She died at the age of 84. I love The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis. It, it's just a phenomenally silly, silly film. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it. Personally, I've got immense love for The Poseidon Adventure. It's my favourite disaster movie of all time. I've rewatched that more than any other disaster movie. Sad losses. But again, a, a really diverse, a great body of work that you can delve back to remember by. And that's this week's The News. Enjoying the show so far. There's still much, much more to come. But Andy, do you know there's some people who still haven't signed up to the podcast? Fools of a took. What are they doing that for? <laughs> well, I'm sure rather than be called that, Andy, they'd much rather join in and become part of the Filmfile family. Yes, you too can join us every week, uh, getting extra bonus episodes and delivered right into your ear holes by simply heading over to your favourite podcast platform, looking for the film file, hitting that subscribe button. And hey, while you're there, leave us a like. But you can reach us because we're all over your socials we are indeed pretty much every social media channel out there just search for film file uk if we're not on there let us know and we'll get ourselves on there because we like to dominate the world how can you let us know if we're not on the social media channels well you can send us an email podcast yeah, at filmfile.uk and let us know which social media channels you think that we should be on and i'll get around to it and i'll do something on there yeah you'll be up to date on when the new shows drop if you follow us on various socials or you can engage with us on the questions of the week or just engage with us in general on any film related news and don't forget if you want to have your name mentioned on the show and you want to have us look at a film of your choice do what Stephen did 18 months ago recommend a film for our deep dive and we will get round to it and I know already that Stephen is thinking of the next film that he wants us to look at you can also find us on No Barriers Radio every Thursday 8 o'clock all being well and now it's time for this week's deep dive <laughs> This week's Deep Dive is going to take you back to the year 2008 for this hit British drama, which was a loose adaptation of the novel Q&A by Indian author VK Swarup, and it narrates the story of 18-year-old Jamal from the slums of Mumbai. The film star Dev Patel was directed by award-winning Danny Boyle, and that film is Slumdog Millionaire. Doctors, lawyers never get beyond 16,000 rupees. He's on 10 million. What can our slum dog possibly know? We went on the show because I thought she'd be watching. She's my destiny. Welcome to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire! Are you ready? When we're thinking of new ideas for deep dives, this one came instantly to mind. I'd just been teaching this to my film students and they were genuinely, genuinely warmed by it, as was everyone else who saw this film, because it just hits the right note. Who knew that a film based around the Hindi version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire could be a successful feature. But in the hands of Danny Boyle, he brings life, charm and colour and also Dev Patel to the screen. The first time I came across this, oddly enough, was the adaptation of Q&A as a BBC radio drama. I was on a particularly long drive, tuned into it, and I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. When the film came out, I didn't realise that I'd been listening to the story uh, only a couple of years previous. 
and I had the same kind of connection to it. This is a clever and beautifully crafted film. Of course it is. It's Danny Boyle. The film script was written by Simon Bufoy, and it tells a story of a street child who puts into practice everything he's learned around him to take on the I Want to Be a Millionaire. Dev Patel plays Jamal Malik, a late teenager from the slums of Mumbai, becomes a contestant on the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Whilst he does well on the show, becomes very popular, answering these questions which no one believes that someone from the slums should know. He's then interrogated under, under suspicion of cheating, and through it, he revisits his past, and each of the questions that he was asked relates to something in his past, which is the reason why he knows the answers. This is a film in which the structure in which it's told is just as important as the story that's telling itself because it flashes through the different time sequences from his appearance on the, the show, the interrogation afterwards, and then back to his history to slowly tell you who this character is and how he got where he is and what is he really on the show to do. It's a marvellously woven story. I know that Danny Boyle, when he was first asked whether he wanted to make this film, he was tempted to turn it down because he just thought he doesn't want to make a game show film. But when he found out that the writer was Simon Beaufoy, who wrote Full Monty, which is a film that Boyle adores, he gave the script a read. And that changed his mind completely. He was drawn in with the complex storytelling that was going on. And he straight away knew how he wanted to bring it to the screen and who he wanted to bring it to the screen with. It looks like he made the right choice because this is a film that stands up. The film is shot largely around Mumbai and a lot of the shantytown areas. Boyle decided to translate nearly a third of the film's English dialogue into Hindi to give it that sense of authenticity. He also found uh, his leading man in Dev Patel, who at that point was a relative unknown, but of course has gone on to a much greater career since then because just of the absolute charm he has throughout as the underdog who basically takes on the system. Cast in the role of the quiz master of the game show as well is one of the legends of the Indian movie industry, Anil Kapoor. And bringing such an established name to it as well gave it some credence and really grounded it for most audiences. It did, however have a lot of controversy on its release, particularly from the Indian market. It was subject of discussion amongst a lot of people in India, and some critics responded positively, but others objected to issues such as the use of the British English by Jamal, feeling that it shouldn't have had any English in there, or the fact that similar films by Indian filmmakers hadn't received equal recognition. And they saw this as just being another Hollywood thing trying to tell our story. A few notable filmmakers such as Amir Khan and Priya Dershan have been very critical of the film. Uh, Salman Rushdie argues that it's a patently ridiculous conceit. And Adore Gopal Krishan, one of the most acclaimed filmmakers in India during the 80s and 90s and a five-time Best Director winner at the Indian National Film Awards, lambasted the film. In an interview, he said it was a very anti-Indian film. All the bad elements of Bombay's commercial cinema are put together in a very slick way and it underlines and endorses what the West thinks about us. It's a falsehood built upon falsehood and at every turn it's fabricated. At every turn it's built on a falsehood. I was ashamed to see it was being appreciated wildly in the West. Fortunately, Indians were turning it down and the Indian country didn't perform very well in as a result of the negative backlash and a lot of that has to do with the class system or the system in India. They don't like attention being drawn to how the slums are. And so they tried to say this is not a true representation of what the slums is. And it turned into a political kind of thing. Outside of India, though, the film was met with critical acclaim. 
and was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, in which it won eight of those awards, including Best Director and Best Picture. Yeah, it also won seven BAFTAs as well, including Best Film, five Critics' Choice Awards and four Golden Globes. This was huge around the world. And it's because we all dream of going on a game show and winning a million. We all have that dream of being sat there and being able to get all those 14 questions right. And us being lucky to get them right because of things that we've done in our past that have made us remember them. And that's what this story taps into. It's that you don't have to go and study to learn these things. You can pick up general knowledge that could win you money from just your everyday activities. And what makes it really work is that whilst on the surface, you say what this story is about, you think, oh, that's a really heartfelt story. Yes, it is. But it's also very dark as well. Yes, very. It's brutally dark at points at shockingly dark and critical that juxtaposition between like the light frivolity the some of the joking natures to the life of jamal growing up if it was in the wrong hands the balance would have just fallen apart but Boyle balances the whole thing perfectly the film is visually dazzling of course it is it's danny Boyle, and it also has an emotional resonance it's could be described in many ways as dickensian in the way that it talks about class and yet it still fits into an ultra-modern uh, romantic film, um, a story of star-crossed lovers. All of this hinges completely on the lead performances. And it's not just Dev Patel who's the lead in this, but also the young actor playing Jamal at a... You've got the youngest actor who is okay, but the one who really stands out is Tanai Cheddar, who plays the middle youth Jamal. And he's just got a cheeky charm to him. He's got a presence on screen and he's a believable character. Through this film, there's so many moments that will have you joke laughing. There's so many moments that will have you like worried and concerned. There's so many heartbreaking moments. And there's also moments that make you go, oh, and I'm talking about the poo hole. I'm talking about oh, how, yeah. he, how, how he meets his favorite actor. Yes. And, um, <laughs> again, uh, cleverly how that, scene ties into one of the questions asked on the show because he uses his real life experiences to answer all the questions it is it's an outstanding film as i said before it's dazzling in the way that you would expect from danny boyle but it also has again as you would expect from danny boyle heart absolute heart from it it was the second uh, highest grossing film in the uh, British film worldwide after Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And it's the most successful independent British film of all time. So, Andy, we've talked about our love for Slumdog Millionaire. Where can we find it if we want to share it? If you subscribe to Disney+, Plus, it's sat on there at the moment. Well worth checking out. Or you can go and buy it or rent it from any of the usual services. But Disney+, Plus is your place to be looking at this point in time. So we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy and I have seen two of the films out of the three we're going to be talking about. But Andy, tell us about the film that I haven't seen. And that will be Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. All right, so I'm making like a little documentary. Oh, it's like it's a like... movie, but nobody has any lines and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it. Mm. No. Hmm? Tell me about what's life like. It's pretty much common knowledge that it takes at least 20 shells to have a community. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket, and that's why I don't like the saying everything comes out of the wash, because sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it does, and they're just like a completely different person. So it's actually only two of us now, myself and my grandmother, Nana Connie. We like to watch 60 Minutes because Leslie Stahl is fearless. Nana, make the noise. Tick, 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 tick. 
Sometimes I find my mind wandering, thinking, what would my family think? Do you think they could be out there? Marcello, let's forget about being afraid. Just take the adventure. Okay, let's do it. Marcel Lachelle with Shoes On first appeared in a 2010 short film which had a documentary style approach looking at the life of a small seashell who provides insights into his life and the world around him. Two more shorts followed in 2011 and 2014 with the character charming the world with his look at life with lines such as, you know why I smile a lot? Because it's worth it. A feature length film has been in the pipeline since that third short film came out and now the world can get to enjoy the life of Marcel on the big screen. Documentary filmmaker Dean moves into an Airbnb, discovering that it's inhabited by a tiny living shell named Marcel and his grandmother, Nana Connie. Dean begins filming Marcel's daily activities, uploading small segments to the internet, and the short films become a huge success online. And when Dean learns more about how the property used to be home to a community of shells and other items, Marcel's family, who vanished when the previous occupants left, he works with Marcel to try to find out what happened to his family and hopefully reunite them, using Marcel's newfound fame to get the public support and the public seeking out the previous occupants. This film is an absolute joy to watch from start to finish. From the early comical insights into the daily life of Marcel and Connie, through to the rise to fame and search for his family, there's a warmth and a genuine heart to the whole tale that doesn't fail to engage and charm. Marcel, with his childlike view of the world and his attempts to understand the life of the big people in return, not only gives insight into his own life, but shines a spotlight on human behaviours. The animation of Marcel is effectively simple and entirely convincing. You stop thinking of him as an inanimate object given stop-motion life and start to actually believe in Marcel as a living thing. The documentary-style approach certainly serves this immersion well, making you feel that you're actually following a real-life plight. Voiced by Jenny Slate, Marcel feels like a living, breathing entity. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll be utterly engaged in the tale on screen as Marcel works his way into even the coldest of hearts. Showing that you can still do new things with stop-motion animation, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is a film I urge everyone to seek out and view, and I guarantee some of you, like me, will now consider Marcel your spirit animal for life. So the big film we're going to be talking about this week is Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. But before that, a film dropped on Apple TV, a film called Sharper. You like him a little bit. Of course I like him. He's a billionaire. I always assumed my son would inherit all this. Roll up your sleeves. You never feel sorry for the mark. Is this real? This is real. What did you tell him? You lied to me. We're all human. Just doing the best we can. So, you're a big fan of films with twists. Well, this has got twists aplenty. Story is, a New York bookstore owner, Tom, falls in love with a customer, Sandra. It changes his life in more ways than he initially expected, as both are revealed to have complex backgrounds. An array of untrustworthy characters basically look to take advantage in whatever ways that they can. The film also stars Sebastian Stan, Julianne Moore and John Lithgow. And it was directed by and or director Benjamin Caron. Andy, what did you think to this before I tell you what I thought about this? I had fun with this. Um, it comes from A24 working with Apple, part of the deal that they struck for releasing some of their films through them. It was a film that the cast and the characters caught me up 
quite fast. The structure of the film really impressed me. I like that we start with Tom's story and then we move to Sandra's story and then Max's story. And each time we get the central stories just expanding out before and after to tell the whole thing. This is a film in which that kind of structure is necessary because otherwise it is quite straightforward. And I've seen enough films with twists and con men that it got to about three quarters of the way through it and I knew exactly where it yes. was going. But it took three quarters of the way through it to get to that rather than it being quite early on that I picked it up on it because of the way that it's structured. I enjoyed this a lot for the performances. It's not brilliant. It kind of stumbles at a couple of points. But once Tom's story had played out, once it shifted onto Sandra, then I was completely engrossed. That was the point at which it drew me completely in. Yeah, because the first half an hour when we get Tom's story, we don't know until the end of that what kind of a, a, a movie it's going to be. Um, is it going to be a light-hearted uh, romantic drama? And then, as you said, we get the different chapters where each of the main protagonists or even antagonists in each installment we discover a new perspective and as we kind of move further and further in break down the layers we find that it's it's moving to something that well i kind of guessed where it was going but i i enjoyed the ride yeah the, the ride is great the way it plays out that you get to a certain point where you just realize that you're not supposed to trust anyone it's hard to work out who you're rooting for as well and that's one thing that i enjoyed because i kind of wanted everyone to get something out of this yeah I didn't know who I should be supporting. And I think the film's cleverly done that deliberately to make us start to empathise with the wrong people at the wrong times, but then go back to them later going, well, actually, I think that you were right. Out of all the recent Apple TV movies, this is the one that I've had more fun with than the rest. It held my attention for the majority of it until basically the last act. After all that great setup, it lacked something and it, and it wasn't as thrilling or as clever as it, as it needed to be to pay off for the ingenuity of the story. Yeah, it felt like a bit of a cheap cheat at the end. You feel that you, it could have done something a bit cleverer, but instead it lends back into predictability. Yeah. A shame, because it's the only thing that let it down as far as I'm concerned. But like I say, cast-wise, Sebastian Stan and Julianne Moore in particular are absolutely magnificent. John Lithgow pops up on screen a few times and is always a joy to behold. And uh, Justice Smith and Brianna Middleton. Yeah, really good chemistry. So I think we both liked it, but we think it had some, some shortcomings by the end of it. Yeah, it's one of the better of the con men heist kind of movies movies that I've seen of recent years. It's one of the better scripted, better structured. It is just that ending that kind of like diminishes it slightly. So moving on to the big film of the week, and it's the first Marvel movie of the year. Yes, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania has landed in all its size. The Conqueror. He will burn the world to find you. On February 17th, if you want to stop what's coming, better hurry, Ant-Man. I don't care who this guy is. This is my fight. I'm coming for you! You think you can beat me? I am Kane! Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So we now find Scott Lang played by the ever-charming Paul Rudd living his best life. He's a superhero. He's enjoying everything that that means. He's in kind of semi-retirement. And his daughter Cassie, played with much energy by Catherine Newton, sends a signal to the quantum realm. And they find themselves, that is, 
Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer and Evangeline Lilly transported to a world of infinite probabilities and some very bizarre creature. Their Ant-Man encounters the timeline meddler who we met in Loki, Kang, again played by Jonathan Majors, while Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, faces up to some secrets from her past. Um, this has had a, a bit of stick, I've noticed, around uh, especially the Twitter sphere and uh, other reviews. And, and, and while we don't, I don't want to come across as being a shill for Marvel, because while I enjoy most of the things that Marvel do, they have been very spotty recently, and I'm looking especially at you, Thor, Love and Thunder. But personally, I kept waiting for it to let me down because I'd read so much negativity mm. about it. Yeah, I, I had fun with this. This was Marvel leaning into comic booky aspects to the maximum. This is probably the most comic booky of all the Marvel outputs so far. And I embrace that. The cast is really good. Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly, there's a good chemistry built between them. Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer work well together. Catherine Newton, new entry to the family dynamic here, uh, replacing the previous actress. And boy, she's great. Well, we saw it in Freaky, and she was full of charm then. She was so charming in that. And uh, one of our favourite films of recent years, Map of Tiny Perfect Things yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. Back then, we said that she's somewhere, someone who can really like go somewhere, and she's been to the quantum realm now, so she can go somewhere. But that family dynamic was so believable. The father-daughter relationship, that there's a bit of animosity there because Paul Rudd wasn't always there. I felt that this family dynamic really played out solidly and with a sense of believability and an almost fantastic four style to the group aspect of it. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of something like Fantastic Voyage. Yeah. I know that there's criticism being out there about the effects work. This is what Marvel films are now. It's just actors in a green screen with CGI environments. Did you expect them to go and shoot in the quantum realm? <laughs> are you upset that there's no location shooting on this? It's a quantum realm. We don't know what it looks like. And I thought that the rendering of these environments was surreal. It was creative. It was bizarre. It was beautiful. It was dynamic. It was vibrant. It was everything that the imagination could behold about this unimaginable dimension, basically. I've certainly enjoyed this much more than the other CG fantastic realm that's out there at the moment, Avatar Way of Water. Yeah, I mean, Avatar Way of Water certainly looks great, but I think that this was a lot more creative. It has got a few niggles. One of my niggles is that as much fun as the Bill Murray cameo was, it was maybe a tad excessive and it actually added nothing to the story. It didn't go anywhere, did it? No, it wasn't necessary. They could have just cut that all out completely and just had one ship turning up to come and capture them rather than this character. But this was we already knew when we announced in the news last year that Bill Murray was getting a cameo that it was just done as a favour by the director because he just went, I've got a fun part for you to do. And you get that feeling from it. But that's the only bit of the film that I felt was unnecessary. The rest of it, it starts off fun and fun and joyful, and then it quickly gets into the core story and doesn't slow down. It just paces along. And unlike the last film that just got straight into the story, Multiverse of Madness, this doesn't feel like it's been chopped yeah. in any way. And it feels like it flows so much better because Multiverse of Madness felt like it was cut down unnecessarily. But this, I was worried going in with it being just over two hours in runtime that maybe it would feel like uh, it's been cut down and it should have been longer. But I think it was just right. Let's talk about uh, Jonathan Majors as Kang the Conqueror. We'd seen him as Loki as he who shouldn't be named. And it just proves that Jonathan Majors is a major, major star. And one of the things I found very, very impressive is especially his scenes with Michelle Pfeiffer, which is less about sort of the bizarre creatures and more about them just talking and their, their 
their complex histories mm. is how quiet his performance was for a, for a villain and how uh, almost at times he whispered his intentions and that made him much more chilling. This is always how I've envisioned, whenever I've read comics, this is how I've envisioned Kang being. I've never envisioned him being like megalomaniac, ha 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 ha, I will destroy it all because he's never that character. And I've always thought, whenever I've read him, I've always had this like really reasoned voice in my head as he's took, as I'm reading the speech bubbles. And this cap encapsulated it perfectly. It was a very reasoned character that you could kind of understand why he is who he is. And then he turns dark. And when he becomes dark, man, he's scary. With some absolutely comic accurate depictions, including a panel which came out of uh, in the sort of 1980s, I think, which uh, blew me away when you mm. see, and I don't want to give away a spoiler, Yeah, but if uh, if you're not listening, The Court of Kangs. I mean, we knew it was coming anyway. Yeah. Let's be honest. We've, we've known it since that episode of Loki. I remember the panel. It was, it just, it's the same angle as, as the, <laughs> the panel from the Avengers. I absolutely uh, I loved, loved that it, this did feel more so than, as you said, uh, than any of the films, like a uh, like a comic book that it went yeah. left of center. It's kind of goofy. It rides on the Paul Rudd charm as ever. It's perhaps more lightweight to say that this is the kickoff phase five. Yep. But I had a good time with it. I mean, there were some nice joys with some of the support cast as well. William Jackson Harper as Quaz was a pure delight. The guy who can read minds whether he wants to or not had added some good touches of humor. I recognized David Dasmalchian's voice in there. Yes. He voiced Veb. And I'm so pleased that he's still something to do with it, even if his physical body wasn't on on screen this time. And the return of Corey Stoll, this time playing MODOK. <laughs> For all the goofiness of MODOK, um, they find a way <laughs> to make him work. Yeah, and if you've only seen if you've not seen the film and you've only seen those still images that are circulating around the Twitter sphere that people are mocking and saying, look how pathetic this looks. The problem with the still image is you need to see the still image in motion. And it I think it actually works in motion. Yeah, it's not the best of effects ever, but it works in all its goofy craziness. What is Modoc? In the comics, he's a giant head with tiny limbs. What is he in the film? He's a giant head with tiny limbs. What do you want? So overall, a lightweight beginning to the next phase for Marvel, but there was enough in there to keep me happy and intrigued. The mid credit scene is definitely worth sticking around for. That's the setup for where this phase is going. And the post credit scene doesn't really add anything. It's something that we already knew was going to be happening anyway. But it's a joy for people who are just completely immersed. So we did mention this last week and we're halfway through The Last of Us season one as it is now. And um, so far, so good for me, Andy. Yeah, completely agree. I'm loving the way it's drawing from the game, but also expanding the backstory and making small changes. Episode three has been an absolute highlight a long, long time, showing us the backstory of Bill and Frank. Nick Offerman stole all of our hearts in that episode. So much so that it made it into my neat thing for the week. Even though that story deviated from the game, it did so to the benefit of the overall story. And also, that was the first episode to have the look through the window recurring shot that you get from the games. Because windows are a huge, important theme in the games, that gazing through the windows. And we got the closing shot of looking through the window. And episode five then did something similar with Henry and Sam. It showed us elements of the story that we couldn't see in the games because playing the games, you're playing it through Joel's eyes and sometimes Ellie's eyes. So getting to see the backstory of support characters. Yeah, in, in a game, you are stuck for a certain amount of time with, with those lead characters and you cannot cross cut. 
in a game yeah. because you lose momentum and you've got to have an action sequence to, to keep you engaged. And it's funny enough, I'm playing after watching this, The Last of Us Part Two, and it's it's finding out and it's making the world bigger and it's making the world more intriguing. And the theme of, of what love can do to characters because that that's what this series is about you saw it with with henry and sam you saw it with bill and frank and you saw it also with kathleen as well with the love of her brother oh she was played brilliantly as well by melanie linsky i mean melanie linsky's a great actress always stood out but i love the fact that she plays a very soft-spoken and delicate while she's really quite a vicious vicious character at the same time the offset of brutality to softness works marvelously so it it's it's not disappointing it is everything i'd hoped it would be it's it's one of those and it's exactly like the game for me andy i i looked forward to finishing it but also knew that I would miss it as soon as I finished playing with it. And I found the game to be incredibly emotional. And as we're now into understanding the relationship between Joel and Ellie, that's what made the game absolutely unique. Well, it's it's not the creatures. It's not the fight scenes. It's the relationships. And they've done that beautifully and they've adhered to it perfectly for me yeah we're halfway through the series now and joel and ellie's bond is slowly starting to develop and it's believable in the way that they're slowly starting to grow a fondness for each other this is a beautiful element of storytelling and it shows how video games have great stories that can adapt to another medium without having to change too much because they've made so many mistakes in the past of adapting yeah. things and moving away from the story. I'm looking at you, Max Payne movie. You were terrible. This shows that just adapt it and just enhance it by drawing on a few other themes and aspects. This is a show that I watch with the wife and my daughter each week. And even though I know how it's going to progress because I've played the game, the journey that I'm going on with it and the small changes still make it feel fresh. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's as tight as an adaptation that you want to be without it being just the cutscenes cut together. Yeah. So if you've not checked out Last of Us yet, then what are you doing? Seriously, go and check it out. We'll give you our final review after the last episode. So Andy, anything for this week? Um, Over at cinemas, there's Joyland. There's What's Love Got To Do With It? And... Well, this one's on my radar to watch. Cocaine Bear. <laughs> I just, it just makes me laugh just thinking about that title. Uh, now TV and Sky. There's a political conspiracy film called The Independence Landing this week. There's also a horror called The Invitation. And I spoke about it last year. The animated Where Is Anne Frank lands on Sky, and I urge everyone to watch it. Netflix sees The Strays, which gives us a psychological thriller. Over on Amazon, there's Bandit, which is a crime thriller with Mel Gibson and Josh Duhamel. There's Those Who Wish Me Dead. And then there's Die Heart. Kevin Hart plays a fictionalized version of himself as he tries to break away from comedy and move to action thrillers. And I couldn't be less enthused. Uh, the terms oh and dear come instantly to mind. <laughs> yes. It's like Kevin Hart trying to do a Nicolas Cage. And that's about it for this week. With that, that's about it for this week. And... We have to do this every week because we enjoy it so much. And that is our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've had a great time with, whether it's um, a meal, whether it's a movie, a game, you name it. As long as we enjoyed it, it's our neat thing. Andy, your neat thing for this week is? Just in time for the game coming to PlayStation Plus Premium this month, I'm going to bring Horizon Forbidden West to um, the neat things. Now, I only bought this game recently as in just before Christmas. So to find out that it's getting put on the PlayStation Plus Premium this month almost upset me if it wasn't for the fact that it now means that other people can enjoy this game as much as I'm enjoying it. If you've played the first Horizon game, then you know what to expect. 
it's the same blend of robotic creature hunting and then capturing whilst working through a story on how this the world had changed and greatest devastation took place. But now there's a new threat coming from the West and Aloy has to move through areas that she, and lands that she's never been through before to go and explore, collect things, build up her weaponry and take down the new menace. What I love about this game is not just that the gameplay is great and that it looks great and that the story is really well engaging. I mean, there's, this is another thing getting adapted to TV series at some point. But more than that, this is a game that I can jump on for short or long sessions because it's got a free explore nature kind of it with little pickup challenges and tasks. So if I've got half an hour to kill before I have to head off to work, I know I can jump on this and bash out a small little side quest before I have to disappear rather than having to log on and go, oh, I'm going to be in this for about three hours. If I've got a full day, I can work through the main story and I'm hardly into the story so far because I'm exploring, delving into everything. I'm trying to unlock all the hunts. I'm trying to collect all the equipment that I can. And there's even a little mini game in the game where you can go around and challenge people on like a strategy kind of chess game. And I'll happily just sit there and play that. This is fun. This is looks great. It plays well. And just like the first Horizon game, it's just so engaging. My neat thing landed on Apple TV Plus this week and it stars Billy Crudup. And I've only seen the first episode, but I'm intrigued. I have no idea where this is going. Now, when I read about it, it said that it's a comedy drama. However, it doesn't feel very comedic and it feels more like a drama. But the setup is incredible. And that's Hello Tomorrow. And it's set in a retro futuristic world and it's worth checking out just for the production design imagine that the world never changed from the 1950s as we moved into the future as we moved into jetpacks as we moved into cars that didn't need wheels that we had robots that all looked like that fantastic futuristic look that we thought the 1950s were and what i mean by that is cars with fins and diners that have got robot waiters. It's got to be one of the most unique looking series that I've ever seen. Now, I'm in it up to episode one, and I will go back to it. But if you want to see that kind of realisation that we saw in all pulp magazines of what the world was going to look like, but still set in a retro 50s way, then Hello Tomorrow is worth joining in just because of the design. Billy Crudup is absolutely fantastic. He seems to me to be channeling John Hamm from Mad Men. I have no idea where this show's going, but so far, I'm in. And that's it for this week, folks. And we just count the days for when we're with you again. And over this next week, I mean, I've, I've basically got one more week of work to get through before I get my week and a half off. Yay! So I've just got a lot of things to slog through. Like I said top of my list for this week though is definitely going to be cocaine bear join us again next week as ever we love doing this and we love doing it for you so please come and join us and i couldn't do it without this guy because well he just does everything produced and edited by andy Meekin. and andy andy i wake up every morning wishing that i didn't know the answer to that question Hello and welcome. Yes, it's the film shile. It's the film shile. Film shile. <laughs> That's like five weeks on the run that you've messed up the name of the show on the introduction. It's, it's, it's not like we've done this for 155 episodes. I, know. <laughs> oh, I don't know why that came from. We didn't. We didn't mention the re- female reimagining of Starsky and Hutch. I didn't even know about that one, and therefore it should remain dead. <laughs> I mean. 
the, the baffling one with the female reimagining of Starsky and Hutch is why do that when Cadney and Lacey are, Lacey are sat right there? Yeah. Why not just do a new version of Cadney and Lacey? Because yeah. that's what that show was. It was a female version of Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, bring that back. I'm better written. Yeah. <laughs> right. And not a comedy. Anyway. And then. Do it. Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Will we ever go a week without me doing an Arnie impression? It'd only be no, wrong not to. <laughs> oh man, Marcel's my spirit animal. <laughs> so what else is out, Andy, over the next week? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny enough, I'm playing after watching this, The Last of Us Part 2, which is why I was late to recording today, because <laughs> I got lost in uh, The Last of Us Part 2. 